So suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent to the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and they entered the house of Lydia and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And Father, we ask this morning as we just stand here in your presence, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and his ministry among us, that you would bless the word of God to our hearts, to our soul, to our mind. Lord, we pray that you would just give to us that which we need to hear from the word of God this morning, that we would be receptive and attentive and we pray that your spirit would speak to us now. And we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, do you have, like I, I hope, a longing to see God's power work? To see God's power work amongst the world. You know, perhaps sometimes God's power, I think, is at work. It's just in work in certain ways that we sometimes just don't even recognize. You always need to keep in mind that God has power to work in many different forms and through many different ways. And I think really that is what we see demonstrated here in the latter half of Acts chapter 16. In our passage today, we clearly find God's power at work in multiple different ways. Some of the ways God's power is at work are quite obvious, like an earthquake, uh, that frees prisoners and the cell doors come flying open. But we're going to see in this passage, there are other ways that God's power is at work, I think, as well. They're just a little less recognizable, but are just as valuable. Uh, and oftentimes that's the way God's power works in our lives as well. Now, Acts chapter 16, remember, is basically a record, the chapter of how the church of Philippi, to which our New Testament letter of Philippians was written how Paul went to this city there 
preached the gospel and really a work of God sprung forth and a church was planted. Remember, it says that when he got there, he went down to the riverside where a few Jewish women gathered regularly on the Sabbath day where they spent time in prayer as an act of worship to Yahweh God. And Paul went and attended that meeting and he kind of just casually, informally went amongst them and began to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he was, God's Messiah and Savior. And as Paul shared the truths about Jesus and his offer of salvation, if they believe and follow him, remember it said that the Lord opened the heart of one of the women there, Lydia, who believed upon the Lord, who was saved, Ultimately, it seems her family comes along as well. And after the Lord opened her heart in salvation, she then opened up her home and invited Paul and it seems then other believers to her home. And it seems that her house almost became the uh, meeting place for the church plant in Philippi, very common thing. So her home kind of becomes the gathering place for new followers of Jesus as well. Why Paul was in Philippi, we saw just in our last study together there that The Lord Jesus, by his authority, used Paul, remember, to release a demon-possessed girl from this unclean spirit of divination that was controlling her, this slave girl who was being manipulated by human masters and owners to gain profit by her fortune-telling. And Paul, by the power of Jesus, delivered her from this unclean demonic spirit. And when her master saw their profit, uh, margin had been greatly decreased that no longer were they going to be able to use her in that way. Remember, they were enraged that Paul had just done this now and really kind of ruined their business of using this girl in slavery. So they dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities. They began to falsely accuse them of things, saying that they were troublemakers in the city, and more than that, that they were actually lawbreakers. They had violated the laws and customs of Rome. In fact, if you look with me back up in verse 22, for sake of flow, it says, then the multitude rose up together against them. That's Paul and Silas. The magistrates tore off their clothes to humiliate them as well as to prepare them to experience being it says verse 22 beaten with rods a severe beating they underwent then when they had laid many stripes on them they threw them in the prison commanded the jailer to keep them securely and having received such a charge he put them in the inner prison the dungeon-like filthy dark area in the innermost part of the prison and fastened their feet into stocks another form of torture Then verse 25, that verse we left off with, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, not the response you would expect. And it says the prisoners were there listening to them. So here's God using this dark, very difficult hour in the life of his servants to basically shine the light in a greater degree of his reality and his existence. Because you can guarantee, most certainly, that as these men who had endured all they just did, being beaten and, and put in stocks in this unpleasant position, in this filthy, dark, miserable dungeon are there, uh, most people don't usually start a chapel worship service at that time. But that's what Paul and Silas did. And at midnight, they do this very unusual thing and they begin to just start praying to God. And they just start worshiping the Lord and singing songs. And the Holy Spirit purposely wants us to know that the prisoners were listening. That is, the prisoners and the guards, not there, it was just astonishing to them and what I think was amazing them is I think God was impressing upon their hearts in this unique way that God must be real 
How else would these men be doing? I mean, this God thing must be real. The existence of God and this reality of the lordship of Jesus over these men's lives were so evident, and yet they had no idea that God had just gotten started, that he was about to demonstrate himself in even more powerful ways beyond that. Look at verse 26. It says, and then suddenly, notice the chapel service gets interrupted. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains, not just Paul and Silas, everyone's chains were loose. So the God who powerfully rules over all creation here in verse 26 causes what appears to be an intense yet very localized earthquake in such a way to orchestrate a mighty deliverance here. Notice in verse 26 there in our text where God concentrates all his power with this earthquake. It says, verse 26, the foundations of the prison were shaken. In other words, I think indicating this wasn't an, a, an earthquake that shook the region. It wasn't an earthquake that shook the whole city it was a centralized, very local, intense earthquake that rattled right under the foundation of the prison walls itself in this very supernatural way. And the reason is because God shook the prison because that was all God needed to do to accomplish the purposes that God wanted to accomplish. And the God of all creation who rules over everything in natural existence and the universe and all of that which exists in nature is able at times to orchestrate what he wants through natural occurrences and in nature at times to complement or fulfill his plans. God can use the natural world in the way he desires to fulfill his purposes. And if you read your Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, we see all throughout the scriptures that the God of creation periodically uses his creation to conduct his purposes. I mean, some of the most common things that come to our mind. Think of the mighty deliverance when God parted the Red Sea and God led his people out in deliverance and they walked. It was just a miracle that God parted the sea to, to deliver them out of some miserable condition. But the crazier thing is they walked through on dry ground. So God parts the sea and then he makes the ground instantly solid, not muddy and mucky, so that Israel can travel through. And then afterwards, he just closes everything in on the Egyptians. And then God repeats the same thing later on with the Jordan River. This time, he's not delivering them out of something. This time, he parts miraculously the waters to bring them into something. Think of the experience with God and, and Jonah. Here you have this disobedient prophet who doesn't want to obey God. And what does God do? The God of creation creates or at least sends a large enough fish to be able to swallow a disobedient, rebellious servant in such a way to assist him in his repentance. And he causes that fish then to retain the prophet in his belly for three days and then after three days, God says, you know what? Time to give the fish a little indigestion. I brought him back right to where I want him to be. And he brings him right back to the location and gets him back on course where he's supposed to be. And then God speaks to the fish and it vomits Jonah out of the mouth and right back to where he was supposed to be. And God put him right back on course. Even when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus doing the same thing. Remember, he'd be on stormy seas and it would seem like everything was just out of control and Jesus would speak and the storm would just go still. And what would they say? Who is this 
that the wind and the waves obey him, that creation just obeys him because God's in control. So here God supernaturally causes this earthquake. I love this. Under one building, he shakes the prison in such a way that look what verse 26 has happened. God so shakes the foundations of the prison, the walls remain, but immediately it says all the doors of the prison cells open up and everyone's chains are loose. So miraculously locked doors become opened all of a sudden things that once kept people in a miserable condition are now opened up to let them out they're automatically open to give people freedom from a miserable condition they were in people's shackles and chains that were holding them as prisoners immediately just drop off of their wrists and miraculously people are being liberated those imprisoned are being set free and it's all happening by the power of god by the power of God, just bringing a mighty deliverance by working in this present situation. This has nothing to do with any human effort. This is the power of God setting prisoners free. The power of God working in a way to let the shackles off and open doors to set people free. It says immediately the doors opened and people's chains were loosed. And I love that verse because it's just such a beautiful reminder and picture to us of what God has the power to do for people whether it's in a physical circumstantial sense or in any sense god has the power to bring great deliverance in our lives to orchestrate things by his power in such a way to remove chains that keep people shackled in their lives like prisoners to certain things god can break the chains so worship song that talks about that the lord breaks every chain and the lord can break chains in people's lives he can open doors and set people free from circumstances and situations that are miserable, like the dungeon-like conditions they were in, and release people that are stuck in situations. And again, whether it be some miserable circumstance, God can set people free. Whether it be maybe some mental or emotional struggle, God can set people free. Whether it be some struggle with sin or some life-dominating habit, Jesus can set people free free god is in the business of working by his power and if he wills to he can bring instantaneous change to your situation if it be his will he can miraculously instantaneously break the chains in your life in the life of someone you're concerned about and set people free now let me say it may require god shaking things up a bit but in the end, I don't care how much God's got to shake things up. If deliverance comes, it's all worth it. Would you agree? It's all absolutely worth it. Well, as this happens and all the doors fly open and the chains come off, verse 27 says, the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that all the prisoners had fled and ran off while he was sleeping, he drew his sword, it says, and was about to kill himself. So as the prison overseers awakened by this mighty great earthquake that shook the prison, it tells us here he awakens, he realizes all the doors are open and thinking, supposing, the Bible says, that all the prisoners did the natural thing and just fled and ran out before he woke up. Sadly, verse 27 says that he's actually tempted here with the idea to end his own life. 
Now understand, under Roman law and custom, if a Roman soldier or prison guard failed in their duty to guard a prisoner or prisoners, the sentence by law for that prison guard who failed and let their prisoner escape was that guard was not only severely beaten, they then had to serve the sentence of the prisoner that they let escape. Sometimes that even meant experiencing the death sentence. And all of the Roman soldiers who were trained well understood this reality and they feared this happening to them. They were terrified about the reality of this. And so you can understand this man and his situation. Here he is the keeper of the prison. He's supervising not just Paul and Silas, but a group of prisoners. And we read in our text that with Paul and Silas specifically the day before, he was strictly told, remember, keep these men, they said, secure. In other words, do not let these two escape. He was just told that the day before. Now, here's the situation, realizing he fell asleep on the job. And he awoke now because of all this shaking going on. The prison doors are open. It says here that he supposes the worst, that all the prisoners have fled. And he's thinking, I have just ruined my life. The mistakes I have made, I've just ruined my entire life. And fearing what he'd have to then endure and face, the end of verse 27 says that he actually drew out his own sword and was about to kill himself. He decided he was going to commit suicide. He was going to just end his own life. He wrongly felt that ending his own life was a better option than enduring what was going to have to go on in his life. And this is where this man is at. And listen, let me say this morning, the Bible is not silent regarding the subject and topic of suicide. And it is a major problem in our culture. And it is a growing problem in our culture. God understands this human struggle and temptation. And one of the reasons I know that is because I see it periodically throughout his word. God is not silent about the subject. And I don't think we should be silent about the subject and let the devil whisper his lies into people's ears unnecessarily. Now, look, we have no idea what was going on in this jailer's life prior to this time. His, you know, personal experiences, maybe struggles, challenges. We, we have no idea of that. Yet, if I could, consider with me here just from what the Bible gives us record of in this situation where the issue of ending one's own life being contemplated is seeing here, consider just what he's going through even in this scenario, a few things particularly. First of all, he was trained to be an extremely loyal guard of the Roman government, and he's just failed miserably. So I know for certain this man's dealing with a lot of guilt and regret because he feels that he's utterly failed in a way probably that he never felt he'd ever fail. I mean, the shame, the guilt that this man would feel as a Roman soldier. So we know he's under a tremendous amount of guilt for his own failure mistakes. He supposed things were a certain way. Verse 27 says he was supposing the prisoners had fled. So the idea is he's also thinking the worst mentally. He's supposing things are a certain way when they really aren't. But in his mind, he's running all the negative scenarios through his mind as he's struggling at this point. And then add on top of that, he's facing tremendous fear and worry about his future. He's terrified. He's terrified of what the future holds because of what he thinks he's just done 
in a situation. So whatever else prior to this has been going on in his life, now you add these kind of current struggles and that's what's tempting him to reason though wrong, but reason though wrongly that it would actually be better and easier, he's thinking, to end my life rather than to endure through what I'm going to have to in my life. And I point this out to you to expound upon that subject because I, by the Holy Spirit, am thankful this is here because I want you to realize these are some of the common triggers and struggles that at times cause people to be persuaded to wrongly contemplate ending their own lives. Some of the very same things that we see even with this man. People find themselves struggling under the weight of guilt. And maybe guilt over failures or mistakes they've made and their conscience is plagued with guilt. And because they don't know what to do with that guilt, it depresses them, it discourages them, it causes all types of mental and emotional struggles because guilt is just condemning their soul inwardly. And then add on top of that, you have people not only wrestling with that, but people at the same time, like this man, who in their mind, they're supposing things to be a certain way. Like this man, he supposed everybody fled. And their mind is just running through avenues of all types of negative things. And they're thinking the worst of every possible scenario. And in their mind, they are just filled with such negative thoughts. They're assuming the worst mentally. And their mind is just causing them to run down avenues of negative things in such a way that they're just assuming and presuming things to be a certain way. And then on top of that, they're then filled and plagued with things like anxiety, and worry about their future and you add the combination of all those things in and I tell you this the devil who is a liar and a deceiver Jesus said who wants to rob and kill and destroy in people's lives the devil begins to manipulate those feelings and those thoughts and those mental and emotional struggles that go on inside of us at times as human beings and these become the triggers and the things that the devil uses to attack people struggling in such ways to misguide them into the temptation like this man here to think about killing themselves, to think about ending their own lives. So here's this man. He is legitimately about to end his own life. And God uses Paul here. Verse 28, notice to powerfully intervene. It says, verse 28, Paul, Apparently becoming aware of what he was about to do, he called with a loud voice. He yelled out saying, verse 28, do yourself no harm for we are all here. So Paul being aware it was about to happen, he yells out and he says, stop, please don't harm yourself. He's saying that there's no need to do that. It's not necessary for you to end your own life. He says, all of us prisoners are still here. They could have fled, but they didn't. And Paul says to him, look, I know what you're greatly concerned about. I know what you're probably supposing mentally, but those things aren't true. It's just what you're thinking. The, the thoughts you're thinking aren't true. And he's saying on top of that, we're all here. No one's abandoned you. You're not alone. What you're worried about isn't going to come to pass. We're all here for you. Now, keep in mind, that was completely abnormal behavior. Would you agree? When is the last time, if you're in our local prison... If the prison doors went flying open, everybody would just stay put. I mean, this is very unusual. It's very out of the ordinary here what's going on. 
So here God just gave freedom and opportunity to flee. Why would everybody not flee? Perhaps likely because the power of God's love, beginning with Paul and Silas, was operating inside of people and their love and concern for this man caused them to refrain from doing what was in their own best interest and instead doing what was necessary to help him. I, I just try to imagine the actual scenario playing itself out. The, the prison shakes and the chains, just people, their chains just come falling off and the doors come open. Everybody's probably pretty freaked out at that given moment. And then consider, I think, because of what happened at midnight, the praying and the worshiping and the singing and people listening. Remember, the Holy Spirit told us that. I think Paul at this point is kind of him and Silas gained some respect among the people. And maybe Paul, when it all happened, said, everybody stand still. Stop. Don't run out, because if we run out, we will ruin this man's life. This man will lose his life. Our lives have just been spared. Let's not selfishly go running out of here and leave him behind. He'll lose his life if we leave. And perhaps Paul was able to kind of stop everyone and then the guard wakes up and he supposes the worst and he's about to end his life and that's when Paul calls out in verse 28, do yourself no harm, we're all here. Now I look at these verses and to me they speak so clearly of the power of God being demonstrated in exercising love for another human being. I mean, what a demonstration of God's power in the exercising of love in these verses. And as a result, someone who was about to do themselves great harm decides not to. As a result of God using one of his servants to exercise love, they keep a very distraught person from making a horrible life-ending decision. And what a beautiful indication of how God's love powerfully can work through a life. Paul, by choosing another's interest over his own, demonstrates the power of God through the love of God in such a way that something very wonderful happens. And I'll tell you, that kind of love is powerful. It's influential. It's very Christ-like and it's very abnormal. In a culture where everybody does what's in their own best interest, for somebody to very unselfishly not do what's in their own best interest and do what's in the best interest of another person, that kind of love is impacting. It's influential. And it's the kind of love we are called to show, like Paul and Silas, as Christians. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that because Jesus is in us and his spirit is working in us, we're to begin to be like Jesus. It's in Philippians 2 where Paul says, let this mind, that is the mindset of Christ, be in you. And that's when he gives that exhortation, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. He says, but in lowliness of minor humility, esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Wow, amazing how when God's power causes us to exercise the love of God in that kind of way, how God can very powerfully demonstrate his love and his goodness in such a way that life-changing experiences can happen. And again, though even the words that the Spirit of God records for us in verse 28, again, God didn't have to give us this, but verse 28, the Holy Spirit tells us that Paul's few words, which were life-changing, to this man, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. 
to me, I look at that and I think, boy, when verse 27 tells me somebody's about to kill himself and verse 28 says, that's what Paul said to stop him. Do yourself no harm for we're all here. And I want to tell you something, folks. That's the simple essence of what those who are struggling with suicidal temptation and ideas, that's basically all they need to hear. That is what they need to hear. What they need to hear to dispel the lies that are going on in their head and the struggles they're dealing with emotionally, they need to hear very spoken very loudly into their life in a loving way those general concepts. Look, harming yourself is not the solution. Don't harm yourself. That's not the solution. You don't have to harm yourself. It's not going to solve anything. It's not necessary. In fact, it's wrong and it's selfish. It just harms others in the process. And they also need to hear what Paul says as well to this man. We're all here for you. You're not alone. We're here for you to support you, to help you. And, and, and we want you to be here with us. And look, I bring this to your attention because trust me, there are people around you a lot of times that you don't even realize right next to you. Maybe struggling and if the spirit of the Lord reveals that to you, let me encourage you, let God use you. Speak into their lives. Let the power of God use you and perhaps restrain and and hold back one less person from experiencing what this man almost did. What a beautiful thing is the power of God gives Paul this love to hinder this man from doing this. In verse 29, look at the life change. Then he called for a light. He goes running into Paul's cell. It says, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas at that moment so again this one sentence shines into the darkness and now look at this soldier verse 29 it says here's this guy he's a tough roman soldier and you want to talk about showing your humanity now now he's broken now he's humbled do you see what it says there verse 29 it says this rough tough roman jailer he falls down on his knees and he's trembling in the fear of God as he comes into Paul's cell. He's overwhelmed by the situation. He's astonished by what he's witnessed of the power of God in many different ways, from the singing and the praying at midnight to then the prison shaking and the chains falling off and the doors opening. And then again, add on top of that, now this unusual love, wait a minute, you all didn't leave? You all didn't just run? You stood here for me? You stood here just for me? just to show me that you love me after the way I treated some of you as prisoners after how miserable I were to you and again this must have just been astonishing and and no doubt the humbling process just came crashing upon him as here he's literally trembling on his knees and then verse 30 says that he brought them then out the guard did and he said to them asking verse 30 sirs what must I do to be saved What do I have to do to experience the salvation that you have? Here you see the power of God being demonstrated, I think, in another way, by this man's conviction of his own sinfulness and his desire to change and then ultimately his experience in salvation. And let me just say, that is perhaps to me probably one of the most important ways the power of God can work on this planet. One of the most important ways the power of God can work on this planet is to break through human pride and stubbornness. And people like this jailer was prior to this time who think they don't need God. They don't need help. 
They can take care of themselves. And when God's power comes in and strips away a person's pride and stubbornness and all their self-righteousness and thinking, I don't need God. I don't, I don't need God's help. I don't need anybody's help. I'm a self-made person. I'm the captain of my own fate and master of my own soul. And then the power of God comes upon a person's life and humbles and breaks them and exposes their own depravity to them and shows them how dark and sinful and filthy they are in their own guilt before their creator in such a way that only God by his spirit can do by his power working in a life to convince a person that they are sinful to convince a person that they are in jeopardy of eternal damnation in hell because they've offended a holy God and that one day they're going to have to face that holy God and where their heart is literally trembling before God and the fear of eternal punishment and they cry out to be spared. You know, Jesus said the Holy Spirit works in the world to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I tell you, you can't get probably clearer evidence than what you see described here in this account of the Holy Spirit's power convicting a person of sin and guilt than when a person falls on their knees and says, what must I do to be saved? But when the power of God works in a way to convict a person personally and you know I am in trouble before God and I am afraid to die because I don't know if I'm ready to stand before God. Do you know what in that moment? Nothing else matters anymore. The only thing you want to know when you're experiencing the power of God convicting you of your own sin is God, what do I got to do to be spared? God, please, please. Just take my guilt away. God, just make me ready for heaven. I just want to know that I'm, I'm, I'm all right with you, God. And here this man is experiencing the power of God convicting him. What must I do to be saved? What a wonderful thing when God gives people that sense of conviction. And I'll tell you, folks, may we who know the Lord and who have been saved pray for that kind of powerful experience in the lives of people that we know that are unconverted. That if there be an unconverted soul ever among us in the sanctuary, that if we have friends or relatives that are unconverted, that we would pray, God, by the power of your work inside, convict people. Bring them to the place where you bring this man where all they want to do is understand what do I need to do to be right with God and to be saved? Well, I mean, that's a great leading question. What must I do to be saved? So verse 31 says, they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So here we see Paul explains to this man and his entire family, it seems, how they could be saved from the guilt of their sin and from the judgment of hell because of their sin. And he did this by sharing and speaking, verse 32 says, the word of the Lord to them. And ultimately culminating in what he says there, I think the main point in verse 31, that ultimately they need to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, look, I don't think when Paul says in verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. I don't think Paul was giving this man a promise, if you would, or a guarantee that if he believed upon Jesus himself, that that was then a guarantee that his whole household will come to faith and know Jesus Christ. First of all, that would contradict in context the rest of Scripture, which teaches that each person has their own free will and that every person must make their own decision regarding their own sinfulness and the need of salvation they have 
in the Lord Jesus Christ personally. A parent's faith is not just inherited by their children. It's not just bestowed upon your children. Oh, well, so if you believe, then your children are automatically saved. Your children are automatically Christians. And sadly, even in some religious circles, that's kind of what people begin to understand. Oh, I was raised in this particular denomination or well, our family are, well, I don't care what your family is, Methodist, Protestant, Catholic, Calvary, Ch- I don't care what your family is. What are you? Do you know Jesus? <laughs> but there's kind of this concept of that if you're born into something, well, okay, then if you're born, you're kind of like under the covering there. You're, you're okay. Like you get the last name and you also, you get the spiritual benefits or something. Look, that, that would contradict all of scripture. What Paul was saying to this man is look, the opportunity to freely believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, he's saying, this is available for you and for your whole house. So let's go home and tell your whole family about this. That's why he says that he went home and shared the word of the Lord with the entire household and began to tell them. Now, let me just say this in light of that. What is interesting, however, as we contemplate that, is statistically... It has been proven that when a husband or father, which is obviously what this jailer was, he had a house, that when a husband or or father chooses to follow Jesus Christ and ends up getting saved, usually about 80% of the time, the rest of the family ends up following the Lord too. Now, there's the power of God and influence because that many a times is the case. That is why it is so crucial that men recognize their need of Jesus and be the spiritual leaders they are because the power of influence through a husband or a father to take the lead and initiative spiritually is incredibly powerful. You know, one of the things that I you know, told the boys who are pursuing my daughters right now is I said to them very early on, I said, look, do not make my daughter be your spiritual nanny unacceptable that's not the way it's supposed to work you are to be the leader you are to be the influence spiritually and it just what a beautiful thing so many times i've seen you know when a husband or a father really chooses to follow the lord it's amazing the influence that it has on the family the power of that in such a way so paul and silas here had this beautiful occasion and they begin to speak the word of the lord to tell them how to be saved. And no doubt they explained the concepts of what it meant to be sinful and what that meant, but yet what God did in sending Jesus to live sinless in a way we can't and how Jesus died on the cross in our place to take the punishment for our sins and rose from the dead. And now Jesus is alive and at the right hand of the Father and he offers the free gift of salvation and eternal life to any who will come. And no doubt they explained these concepts to the jailer and to his family and how all this can be received by receiving it as a free gift, by believing upon what Jesus has done for us and who he is. And that's why verse 31, I think, is probably the the summary or main point that Paul brought them to. The main point he brought them to is, here's how you can be saved. What do you want to do? He said, what do I got to do to be saved? Well, Paul says, this is it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Isn't it wonderful that's what the Holy Spirit gives us the snapshot of, of the main point of what they shared with them when they talked to them about the message of salvation? They did not speak about any work or religious activity. They didn't say, well, you know, if you can attend church so many times, just kind of, you know, gradually warm yourself up to the whole spiritual thing. If you just, you know, after six months, a year in a church, you're good. And say that. Well, if you know, if you just, you know, if you want to do this religious ritual or work or you just start to do... 
Paul said, believe. Faith, it's a free gift. You can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's about grace. He says, you have to place your utter reliance upon the Lord. Again, the simplicity of salvation by faith alone is a lot of times so simple, that's what makes it hard for people to humbly receive, right? You can say to people, hey, what do I got to do to be right with God? Have my sins forgiven? Well, here's what you do. You pick a particular church denomination that you like, and then you do this and that, push those buttons and pull these levers, and then you got to travel to this place and slay the dragon and bring back the five golden apples, and then you'll be forgiven of all your sins and you can go to heaven. All right, when do I go? You tell somebody else, look, the Bible says we are all sinful, guilty before God, and it doesn't matter if you are you know, Osama bin Laden or you are the nicest person in the whole world who thinks you've really never done anything wrong and you're just a really pretty good person, you're still just as guilty and you need forgiveness of your sins and to trust Jesus to forgive you and ask him to forgive you. And it, well, I don't like that. I don't know. Free? What do you mean free? Nothing's free. I gotta, and and that, that becomes the struggle. Think about it. Jesus had more problems reaching religious people than he did prostitutes, and tax collectors who had no problem recognizing I'm a mess. Because <laughs> human pride struggles with this reality. Again, but what did Jesus himself say? Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through Jesus, could be saved. They asked Jesus in John chapter 6, what must we do to do the works, plural of God? Jesus says, this is the work, singular of God. You want to do some work? He says, here it is. Believe upon him who the Father has sent. Believe. To simply believe. And the word believe, again, speaks of utter reliance. It's not just mentally assent to something. Yeah, I believe Jesus existed. It means I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that what he did and all that he did, it was necessary for me. And so therefore, I am utterly reliant upon that to have my sin forgiven and to know that I can freely go to heaven by receiving his gift of eternal life. It's to utterly rely upon with full dependence and confidence. And, and you know, when the power of God brings salvation and all we do is believe, then God gets all the glory that all we do is believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And you know what, this morning, perhaps you are here and you want to be saved. You want to know you're forgiven. You want to know that for yourself. You want to know you're going to heaven. Can I encourage you? Believe. Believe it for yourself. Believe for yourself your condition and what Jesus did for you. And when you believe it's true for you, you'll receive the power of God in your life in a wonderful way to bring his salvation to you. Well, verse 33 tells us that as the result of this, he took them that same hour of night and washed their stripes. And immediately then he and all his family were baptized to demonstrate their commitment to Christ. And when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed, look what it says, verse 33, he believed in God with all his household. So here's the power of God is to me revealed in the evidence of the clear life changes that happened to this rough Roman jailer. I mean, look at the life change of this man's condition now. Verse 34 tells us at the end of it there that he and his whole household 
believed upon the Lord. But notice, if you would, quickly, some of the results of the fruit of God's power working inside this man and his family. First of all, he's kind of got a new heart attitude. Instead of wanting to end his life, look what it says there. It says that he actually now, in verse 34, is rejoicing. He's ready to end his life previously. Now that he's accepted Jesus, the power of God came into his life by the Spirit, and now he's rejoicing. What's he rejoicing in? Not his circumstances. He still did what was wrong, but now he's rejoicing in the Lord. He has a reason to rejoice. And when the power of God works in someone's life, it does incline a person to want to rejoice in the Lord, to have a worshipful heart. Another thing that's evident of the power of God working in his life is notice the fruit and compassion in this man's life. It says in these verses here, not only does he, verse 33, bring them home, excuse me, verse 34, and, and bring them into his house and set a meal before them, but look at the beginning of verse 33, it says he invites these men into his home, feeds them, and then the greatest display of compassion, it says there, that he began the same hour of night to wash their stripes or their wounds. This man begins to personally wash the bloody, dirty wounds on their body. And I just think, I can't even imagine the tenderness and the compassion. I mean, what was going on is this jailer is sitting there. I mean, is it just completely silent in the room? Is there tears just running down his face as he's washing her wounds saying, I'm so sorry that I hurt you like this. And the power of God's love and restoration as these wounds are being healed. And he's washing out these wounds of these men and this incredible display. You want to talk about a heart change? This mean, nasty Roman jailer and now he's filled with compassion and love. But that's what happens when Jesus works in somebody's life. Hearts can be incredibly changed. And on top of that, it says he and his whole family were immediately baptized. In other words, they wanted to publicly display they were now followers of Christ. And that's what water baptism is. It's a way whereby we, obeying the Lord, demonstrate outwardly, publicly what's happened internally in our heart. Because see, when you accept Jesus and you get saved, that happens on the inside. Nobody can see that but, but God. And you know what happened. That's why Jesus says, I want you to be water baptized. Because as we baptize someone, as they go under the water and back out of the water, it's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You're identifying with Jesus as his follower that you believe wholeheartedly in what he did for you. And that's why it's important to do that. And again, when the power of the Lord is working in someone's life, they want to identify with Jesus. And again, maybe that's something that as you have opportunity in a few weeks from now that you have never done. Look, may the power of God working in your life give you the courage to put your stake in the ground. You know, again, maybe you have just never for whatever reason been water baptized. I'm not talking about you were sprinkled when you were a little kid and all you did was cry as the result. I'm talking about as a conscious, knowing, willing follower of Jesus that you want to demonstrate to your friends, to your family, to everyone else. Look, I want to make it very clear by obeying Jesus in being water baptized publicly that I had chosen to follow Christ consciously myself and that you would demonstrate that. His whole family, what a beautiful thing, being baptized there together as a family that day. And verse 35 says, And when it was day, the magistrates then sent the officers saying, Let these men go. 
And the keeper of the prison reported this to Paul, saying, they've sent to let you go, so go in peace. So they believe, hey, look, I think what's going on here is the previous day's arrest and healing and imprisonment, the authorities decide, you know, we kind of did something we weren't supposed to do. We need to get rid of these guys before we get in trouble for what we did. But Paul's not going to let that happen. Look what he does, verse 37. It says, Paul said to them, they've beaten us Romanly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they want to put us out secretly. No, let them indeed come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. So they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So what was all this about? Is Paul trying to be vindictive here? That's not what's going on. What's taking place is Paul knows, according to Roman law, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen and to imprison them unjustly. And Paul, according to his birth, was a Roman citizen. And so Paul knew they had just tremendously violated their civil rights. And so Paul here, trying to set a president, I think, to protect these new believers, he forces the civil authorities to embrace accountability for their own wrongdoing and to come down and to ask them to leave privately and it actually works because it says here they come down and plead kind of sheepishly like could you leave before anybody finds out that we just broke the law and to me i see here in this another way if you would that god's power works at times and that's enforcing people to take accountability for their own wrongdoing Paul wasn't just trying to be mean and nasty. I think he was trying to protect the Philippian believers as new believers so that the civil government, when he left, didn't continue to attack and harass them necessarily. And Paul knew the law. And they come down and what do they do? When they face accountability for their own guilt, they feel bad about it. And they kind of have an attitude change. And they say, look, we're sorry for what we did. And can you please leave? And I'll tell you something, folks. One of the ways God's power works at times in situations is when people are forced to face accountability for their own wrongdoing. Don't stop people from facing accountability for their wrong actions because sometimes that's what humbles and breaks people. And that's one of the ways God powerfully changes people sometimes. Look at our last verse, verse 40. It says, so they went out of the prison and then before they left, they entered Lydia's house and look what they did. It says they saw the brethren and they encouraged them. Now, would you agree a lot's happened in the last day or two? The beating, the arrest, the imprisonment. And no doubt Paul in his mind is thinking, you know what? Man, this might have rattled the faith of these new believers. So before we leave, they don't need another Bible study, but let's just go encourage them. Let's just go say some things to build them up and to inspire them and to, to just encourage them to keep going. And he's afraid they might be disheartened or worried. So he goes there and he uses some edifying words to encourage the believers. And let me leave you with this thought this morning. One of the ways in which God also powerfully works sometimes is through using people to speak encouraging words to the lives of those who just may need to hear something to build them up in a difficult hour. You know, sometimes the ways of this world and the weakness of our own sinful flesh and the attacks of the devil can really weaken and beat people up. And they can be downcast and disheartened and discouraged. And you know what? How wonderful to intentionally let God use you by his power to go and speak some encouragement 
into someone else's life. You know, the prophet Isaiah says that God has given me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Let me leave you with this thought. Do you want to see God's power at work? It may not be seen in a miraculous earthquake. Can't promise you that. But how about try this week to encourage a few people and see if something powerful doesn't happen in somebody's life. Let's stand together. Let's pray.